Good morning. My name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to have you here. And as Rich uh, mentioned, uh, we are partnering with Life Network, and uh, Brian and I have this little competition going about uh, raising funds for uh, the Walk for Life, and Brian got a head start last week, and, uh, and so I've got to make a bit of a recovery. And, you know, one of the problems is, is, is everybody loves Brian. H- have you ever met anyone who does not like Brian Counts? I mean, he is, he's godly, he's humble, he's uh, encouraging, he's, uh, I mean, he's just a wonderful guy, but he... I'm worried about him, and, and, and this kind of shows you why. Uh, it's, um, uh, I, I, I'm kind of worried about what's going on. He sent this email to the staff uh, on April 30th that says, if you can't read it, you know, it's that time of year when I beat Mark in the Walk for Life fundraising competition, and since beating him every year is getting old, is what he says. I, I think we've got a problem here, people. Um, I, I think it's gone a little bit to his head, and so I responded. I thought, you know, Brian, you know, humility is a godly trait. So I sent him this book by, by Jerry Bridges, uh, The Blessing of Humility, and, uh, and I thought maybe that would help, and here's the response I got back. <laughs> and um, so, um, you know, I, I you know, I, okay, I might have slightly embellished the story, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, might, it might not quite be as bad as I'm making it out to be, but I do need your help, and uh, Brian needs your help, and so we, hopefully you'll support us uh, in the Walk for Life. But for the love of Brian, support me. So uh, I think that's just kind of the bottom line. Well, uh, you know, it is Mother's Day, and, and Mother's Day is, is when we celebrate uh, not just moms, but, uh, but people but human life, and, and uh, you know, it's, uh, human people are, are beautiful, and not just physically beautiful, but when you look at the remarkable, amazing diversity of human beings, even in, in this room, uh, it, it is an amazing, a beautiful sight to see, to see how, how God has made us all differently. And one of the reasons we celebrate moms, of course, is, is because all of us have a mom. We all come from a mom. And uh, that brings up one of the questions oftentimes we have is, uh, is, is you know, we're curious about who we are. Where do we come from? In fact, my sister called me up a couple of weeks ago, and she said, I need your spit. And, uh, and I, you know, what's this? She says, well, I want to find out about our ancestors. And so I'm going to send you a 23andMe kit and I need you to spit, they need your spittle. You're going to spin the bottle and then mail it off and then they'll, they'll send you your, back your DNA. And she says she can't do it because, well, she's done it, but she was adopted. And so she doesn't, can't find out about her, our family heritage. And so she needs my spittle in order to find out about our family and to find out about our family background. Because, you know, I'm sure we're, we're royals, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> You know, Alistair Begg says when people say that they're from Scotland, they always assume that they'd have a castle, not that they were a bunch of sheep thieves that got shipped out of the country. Uh, but, um, uh, but, you know, we are. We're curious about who we are. And over the past three years, uh, websites like Ancestry.com and things like 23andMe have, have taken off uh, because we are curious. We, we want to know, who am I? Where did I come from? And this interest in ancestry is, is not new, it's not novel. In fact, if, if you look in the Bible, there are huge sections of the Bible that are dedicated to genealogies. And that's because to know who I am, I need to know where I come from. 
I need to know about my family. I need to know about my background. I need to know, I need to know my identity. And I think that's one of the questions we have about who we are as humans. We don't know who we are. We've lost our sense of identity. We don't know where we come from. And that's why we need Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where God tells you the truth. I've heard people going to 23andMe and finding out things they did not want to know. Here, God is going to tell us the truth about your background. And it's news not only do you need to know, but you're going to want to know this. Because when you understand where you come from and you understand who you are, we see that we're people of great value. So the first thing that we see in Genesis 1, and again, Rich already mentioned this, is that all human beings bear God's image. All human beings bear God's image. Now, the modern myth about human life is this. It is that our world is simply a cosmic accident. Uh, that the forces that we don't really understand led to the Big Bang. There's nothing, then there was something. That makes sense. And then out of that something, everything came and exploded. And, and just by chance, the earth just happens to be the right distance from the sun so that it can sustain life. And it just happens to have the right composition of chemicals so that life could be formed. And it just so happened that this formed this, what they call this primordial ooze. And all of life crept out of this primordial ooze. We all, all can be traced our life back to this cosmic accident and to this ooze. In fact, not only can we trace our life, but every living thing. And so the mouse in your house is a distant cousin. The roach in your neighbor's house, because you don't have those, uh, the roach in your neighbor's house is a distant relative. We, we all come from the same stock. And that's the story we've been telling ourselves, and we wonder why people don't feel very valued and very treasured. God says, I have a different story for you, a different story. God says, if you trace your ancestry back far enough, you'll find out that we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And if you take that 23 and me and you go even further back, and if you were able to trace it back, we find that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Notice in verse 25, we didn't read this, in verse 25, God tells us that he made each animal according to its kind. He made the animals according to their kind. But then you get to verse 26, and God does not say he creates human beings according to their kind. He says, we create, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God does not create us according to his, our kind. He creates us according to his kind. We bear his image. We are the icons of God, the, the, the visible representations, in a sense, of his beauty and of his glory. We're not just grown-up germs. We're in the image of the creator. And for the Israelites, this was a, as shocking a story as it is for modern people who think we're just, just grown-up germs. For the Israelites, what they'd been told was that the Pharaoh, the kings, the rulers were made in the image of God, but not the common people. In fact, the Babylonian myth, the uh, uh, Enuma Elish, uh, simply says that, that human beings were created so that the gods would not have to work. And the kings, of course, are gods. So here's the story. You are nothing but a slave. You are meant to be a slave. You are of no value. Your only purpose here is to serve those who have dignity and value. And God says, no, that's a lie. You've been told a lie about your family your whole life. And here's the truth about your family. Your family are not slaves, even though you've been 400 years of slavery. That's not your identity. You are made in the image of God. You're children of the living God. You bear his dignity and, your, and his glory. And because of that, we are all royals. 
in contrast to the song by Lord, uh, we all will be royals, we are royals. It does run in our blood because every human being is made in the image of God. Now, as those who are made in the image of God then, think about an image. An image, you look at the image and it shows you what it is imaging. It shows you what it is like. It is to reflect that. If you have a picture of someone, it tells you what that person looks like. So you know something about what is being represented by the image. So there's a sense in which the world should know something about God when they look at us. It's not by physical appearance, but something about his character. And here's why sin is so destructive. Because when we sin, when we lie, when we cheat, when we murder, when we commit violence, we, we are distorting the image of God. We're taking that beautiful glory of God and we're twisting it. Instead of being a mirror that shows what God is like truly, we become like one of those carnival mirrors where everything is stretched and misshapen and the image of God is marred. Sin has not obliterated the image of God in humanity, but it certainly has distorted it and, and marred it. I mentioned this a while back, but the only sculpture that Michelangelo ever signed was the Pieta. Uh, and it's the statue of Mary holding her crucified son. He created that statue and was put in St. Peter's Basilica in 1500. And it remained mostly undisturbed for, for, over, you know, for nearly 500 years. It wasn't until 1972. And a vandal broke past the security guards and with a hammer he began to smash uh, that, that priceless statue. Uh, he, as a result of the, uh, what he had done, he, the, he damaged her nose, her veil, and her left eye. A treasure from the Renaissance became a marred masterpiece. You know, just as with a pieta, an enemy has entered into our world and has savagely attacked human beings. He's left us damaged and defaced. The image of God is still here. The beauty still shines in every person you meet but it has certainly been disfigured and has been marred. Well, what are the implications of this? If we as human beings are made in the image of God, if we, we are like God in some sense, what does this mean? So let's look at the implications. Even though sin has defaced this image of God, the image of God remains and God still treasures it. The Pieta is still a priceless work of art. And human beings are still priceless images of God. And we see this in Genesis chapter 9. So we have creation in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. And when they sin, the image of God is not lost, but it is, uh, it is marred uh, because they are no longer imaging God properly. They are no longer showing his glory. So then in Genesis chapter 6, we find that evil has grown so rampant in the world that it is about to destroy everything in creation. And so God reboots the world through the flood. He cleanses the earth and he restarts the human race with Noah and his descendants. And so then in Genesis chapter 8, we read that human beings, after the flood, are still sinful. In, in 8.26, God says that still the intentions of the human heart are evil from the point of youth. So sin has not been obliterated. Yet even though that is true... When we get to Genesis chapter 9, here's what God says to Noah. He says to him and his descendants, you can kill and eat animals for food. I give you all the animals to eat. You may enjoy. However, he says, he says this in, in, in chapter 9 verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So 
here, even after sinners entered the world, even after God has said, it was Genesis 8.21, not 26, said that the intention of man's heart is evil from youth, God still says that human beings are made in the image of God and therefore human life is to be protected. Human life is to be safeguarded. Because every human being is the image of God. It is, and to assault the image is to assault God himself. Now let's imagine you're a, uh, you know, a, a, a boss and you have um, a lots of people who work for you and you go by and one of your, your, your subordinates, you go into his office and he has a dartboard there. And at the center of the dartboard is your picture. And he's there throwing darts. Now, he might say to you, look, this doesn't hurt you. This isn't like it's voodoo. It doesn't actually do anything to you, right? Has he assaulted you by, by throwing darts at your picture? Well, well, yes, he has, actually. He has assaulted you. He's saying you're worthless. You have no value. He's showing disrespect. It, it, is, uh, it is dishonoring. It, it is personally insulting. And when we assault any image of God, which means any human being, and fail to treat that human being with dignity and respect that they deserve because they're made in the image of God is a personal affront to God. It is disrespectful to him. Every human being has worth and value, not because of what they do, not because of, of, of uh, what they can accomplish or how they look or any standard by which our culture judges value. They have value because of their ancestry. They're in the image of God. I mentioned this when it happened a couple of years ago. CBS News did a news story, and at first it sounded incredibly encouraging. They said that in Iceland, Down syndrome has, has nearly been eradicated. Now, when you hear that, you think that is fantastic because, you know, who doesn't want children to be born healthy? But if you were to, to hear the story, or even you could read the story still, I believe it's still on their website, uh, what the truth is, not that they've eradicated Down syndrome, is what they've done is they've eradicated any baby who might be born with Down syndrome. Nice little semantic shift there, isn't it? They haven't gotten rid of Down syndrome. What they're doing is they're going and they're giving all parents are having genetic testing. And when they get genetic testing, they meet with the counselor. And if the counselor says there's a chance your child might be born with Down syndrome, overwhelmingly, they're, they're just, parents are deciding to terminate the, the life of their baby. Uh, so what they're, but the way they're doing, eradicating Down syndrome, is eradicating anyone who might have Down syndrome. Now, taking this, this Icelandic logic, we can get rid of any disease, can't we? You want to eradicate cancer? Kill everybody who has cancer. Hey, let's solve the old age problem. Not yet, right? <laughs> we can get rid of old age. That this is a completely solvable problem, what you do. Terminate everyone who has old age. And, and what it's saying is that, that value and worth, if, if you're a member of society and, and, and you're not contributing to society, uh, that, uh, that then, then you're, you don't have value. And people say, well, you know, I don't know if I'd want to live with Down syndrome. Well, Down syndrome people are incredibly happy. In fact, I dare say many of us would be much happier, quite frankly. Uh, and so, so what is it saying? It's saying worth comes from what you do. And by the way, uh, there's this sense that your worth comes from what you do. 
that human life is based on if there's something broken in you, you're not worth it. If there's something messed up with you, then there's, you're, you don't have value. This message is being sent to our children incredibly well. We have effectively taught our children that your value comes from, from what you can accomplish, and if there's something wrong with you, then you don't deserve to live. And so because that depression has skyrocketed among teenagers, uh, uh, suicide, as we know in our own city, has been a huge problem because they're being told you came from nothing, you end up in nothing, but somehow you're still really something, unless there's something wrong with you, then maybe you're not. And they're believing what we're telling them. We're telling them a lie. We need to tell them the truth. We need to tell our children the truth. And the truth is what we need to tell each one of us. You are made in the image of God. You are a royal. You reflect the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God. And when I look at you, I do not see a worthless person. I do not see someone who has damaged goods. I see God's glory shining through because that is how he made you. That is the true story. That is the true story. And we need to recover that true story. The Bible provides the only antidote to what is going on in our world because the Bible, you see, science can't answer the question about purpose. Science can't answer the question about why you're here. Science can't even answer the questions about morality because it refuses, it cannot answer the question of where did we come from? We come from God. We come from God. And he made us different from the animals. Each of them were made according to their kind, but not, not you. No, no, when God made you, he made you in his own likeness. And this isn't only true for grown-up humans. It's true for human life at every stage. You know, before fertilization, an egg has no independent life from its mother. Uh, after fertilization, an egg becomes a zygote. Remember that from biology? It, and at that moment, it's its own entity. It is genetically distinct from both father and mother. It now possesses all the necessary information for self-directed development and will grow in the normal human fashion if it's given time and nourishment. It is not part of the mother's body. Rather, it is a separate person that resides inside the mother's body. You know, by 21 days, three weeks, most moms don't even know they're, they're expecting at this point. Uh, but the foundation of child's brain is there. Along with the spinal cord, nerves, senses, uh, organs are completely formed. Six weeks after conception... The nervous system is so well developed that it controls movements of the child's muscles. And the woman still may not even know she's pregnant. Of course, the heart is beating. Uh, by the end of six weeks, all the internal signs are there. Brain's working, blood pumping, kidneys are functioning. By the end of the seventh week, uh, if, if uh, a child uh, will flex its neck uh, when it's tickled. The ears are already formed and show family characteristics. yes. You can do a sonogram and go, yep, there's grandpa's ears, all right. There they are. Uh, but fingerprints begin by eighth week. The ninth and tenth weeks, the child uses its arms. Thumb sucking has been observed as early as eleventh week. By then, she's three and a half inches long and has independent movement of thumbs and fingers. You know, if you've ever seen a sonogram, that's why I love the fact the Life Network has sonograms. It, 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 it shows you what we're talking about. We're not talking about a kidney. We're talking about a human. A human being fearfully and wonderfully made. A human being that already is showing the beauty and splendor of God. 
people are beautiful because people are made in God's glory. And as those who are made in the image of God, we, we celebrate the glory and the beauty of God's creation in general, but of human beings specifically because they are fearfully and wonderfully made. So then what does that mean for us? What are the responsibilities of bearing the image of God? See, every human being bears the image of God, which means I bear the image of God, you bear the image of God, and with that bearing the image of God, not only comes certain rights and privileges, you are made glorious, but comes certain responsibilities. If we are made in the image of God, we're to present a, a true image of what God is like. What is God like? What are we to image God to the world? What is the world to pick up by looking at us? When Psalm 82, God charges those who bear his image. In fact, God in this chapter makes an unusual statement. He says, you are all gods because we're made in the image of God. In Psalm 82, verse 3, he says this to us. He says, we are to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute, Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of wickedness. Now, notice here that God does not only say that it is our duty not to harm the image of God. That's part of our duty. We're we're not to do violence to those who are made in the image of God. But that's not what he says here. He says not only are we not to harm them, but we have a royal duty as image bearers to protect and defend and to cherish those who are made in the image of God. We are to, we're to, to care for the weak, the needy, and the fatherless. We are to rescue them. And because God is a God of justice and mercy and redemption, those who bear his image are to be people of justice and mercy and redemption. We image God best. We present the most beautiful picture of God best when we act like God with justice and mercy and compassion. You know, we live in a, in a remarkable cultural moment. So many beautiful things are happening in our day. On the one hand, I think there's, there's a greater social consciousness, a greater social consciousness uh, regarding the, uh, the, the, the poor, the oppressed, the migrants, the horrors of human trafficking, the evils of, of racism. And as, as Christians, we, we, we applaud these things because we celebrate those who are made in the image of God. And, and so God is concerned. So we saw throughout Isaiah, God is concerned about the poor. And God is concerned about the weak. And God is concerned about the fatherless. And, 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 and God is concerned about people of, of all races and ethnicities. And so, therefore, we who are made in his image should care about them as well. Yet, ironically, while our culture is making much of caring for the weak and the oppressed, some are doing all that they can to remove protections from those who are the weakest among us, the unborn. It goes even further than this. Not only is our culture removing protections from the weak and the unborn, they're actually celebrating the removal of these protections. This is a picture. I'm sure you saw this. I don't know if this next image. That's the Freedom Tower in Lower Manhattan, New York City. It stands as a memorial to 9-11. 9-11, you remember, where, where thousands of people were slaughtered. And so that we would not forget, the World Trade Center has been rebuilt and the, the, the Freedom Tower has gone up uh, as, a, as a testament, as a monument to human life and as a testament against human violence. On January 22nd of this year, 
the Freedom Tower and many of the monuments in New York were, were by order of the governor, were lit up pink uh, in celebration of, um, of, a, of a law that allowed for abortions to take place under some circumstances, even up to the moment of birth. A tower that was meant to be in, built in remembrance of the horror of violence was transformed into a celebration of violence against the weakest among us. As God's people, as those who seek to be intentional in imaging God as he truly is, we have to look at this and say, we must be the defenders of the weak. We must be the protectors of the fatherless. As Psalm 82 says, we are to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. We're to maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Because all people are made in the image of God. Those who love God will love those who are made in his image. It's why we care about the poor. Because everyone, whether rich or poor, deserves to be clothed and fed and to be treated with dignity. And by the way, this doesn't mean we only care about the deserving poor. That would not be imaging God. What if, what if God only cared for the deserving humans? <laughs> and that, that would be a, and so if we only care about those, quote, deserving, uh, then, 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 then we are not imaging God properly. We image God properly when we show compassion to the undeserving because it was while we were still sinners, undeserving, that Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so we image God when we care for the poor, when we care for the needy, when we care for the broken, even when they're there by their own failures, because where would we be if we were left to our own devices? It's why we support missionaries who are fighting human trafficking, because no one who's made in the image of God should be made the property of anyone else. We, sh- we should end exploitation of human beings because, because people are God's image. They're royals. They're not slaves. It's why we speak out against racism and kinism. You know, the recent slaughter that happened in California at the synagogue, the young man grew up in a conservative Presbyterian home, one of our own. And he goes, but he had this view that of the separation of the races that was anti-God, anti-God, evil view called kinism. And we have to speak out against such things because we are made in the image of God. And all forms of racial and ethnic discrimination are a front to his image. And Martin Luther King said it well when he said, there's no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. And it's why we care also about the unborn. Because no matter how small, no matter how young, even the smallest child shows God's glory. And so by supporting Life Network, we're coming alongside those who find themselves in difficult situations. You know, it, it, it's, it, we're not, I don't even like the phrase anti-abortion. That's not the point. We're pro-life. We're pro-human. And, and, and it's not, we're, we're pro-caring for people in need. And so when a family... Uh, you know, it's easy for those of us who have solid jobs, stable families, and a, and a surprise pregnancy comes along. And some of us have had that happen. And, uh, and to say, we can adapt. We can deal with this. But there are people out there who can't, who are facing this, and it is a major crisis. And they don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. And they see no hope. And to simply say, don't have an abortion is, is not a godly response. 
James talks about this. He says, if you see someone's hungry, you don't just say to them, be warm, be filled, and go your own way. You do something, right? You do something. And so when people are in crisis pregnancy, instead of saying, don't do this, we want to come alongside of them and say, let us help you do what is right. Let us help you make a decision that you will not regret. Let us help you. We're going to provide you with food if you need food. If you need clothing, you need clothing. You need training and parenting, you need parenting. If you need help with adoptions, we'll help you with that. Whatever it is you need, we're going to come alongside because we're not just for the baby, we're for you. We're pro-human. We're pro-human. We care. And so we're dedicated to caring those. And so we're not just going to be those people who talk. We're not just going to be those people who tweet or write on Facebook. We're going to be people who act because that's our royal duty. We're to care for the defenseless and the fatherless and the weak. We're to come alongside the hurting. Well, there's one more issue that I must address, and that is the hope for those who bear the image of God. Hope for those who bear the image of God. Now, this may be the most important thing we say. Because what do you do when you realize you have dishonored the image of God? I realize that there may, not may, there, there, I'm sure there are. There are many here who have had abortions or encouraged others to do so. And talking about this uh, brings up painful memories. Uh, it, um, it brings up those feelings of guilt and shame. And the first thing I want you to know, if you're in that situation, is that you are not alone. You're not alone. And I don't just mean there are others who've, in this room who've had abortions or encouraged others to have abortions. Everyone in this room has dishonored the image of God. Every one of us. We have used other people for personal gain. We've, we've failed to care for those in need. We've treated our possessions as if they were our own and not shared them with our brothers in need. And, and we have treated others as if they were commodities. And I don't say this to lessen your guilt or to minimize what you've done, only to let you know that you sit among a people who also know something about guilt and shame. In fact, the reason we gather together on Sunday mornings is not to come together and celebrate we're doing it right. <laughs> we come together and say, Lord, we're not doing it right. And that's why we need Jesus. We come to worship not as a testimony to our goodness, but to God's grace. The reason Christians gather together is because we are desperate for the grace of God. We are hungry for the grace of God. We see our sin, and we know we need our grace. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, John writes this. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice this, that God is the initiator. This is love. Not, not, it's not talking about our love for God here, but God's love for us. And then he uses this word that I don't think this word is used in any other place other than in, in the Bible and in religious context. He uses this word propitiation. When was the last time you went to a friend and said, I need to propitiate something with you? I mean, it's, it's just not a very common word. Uh, it's not a word we use every day. But the word propitiate is actually in a, kind of can be an embarrassing word for Christians because the word propitiate means to, to uh, assuage anger, to, to uh, placate someone. And the idea here is that God is angry and he needs to be placated. And some people don't like this idea that God gets angry. They say that sounds so Old Testament, so archaic, so, so ancient. 
And yet, I think if we understand a little bit more about who God is, we understand uh, his anger is actually a part of his holiness. It's part of his goodness. Uh, because God is angry at sin. And he should be. God is angry at injustice. And he should be. And here's how you know he should be is you are too. You are too the reason that, that we feel guilt and shame. And the reason you feel guilt and shame over the things that you've done is you look at what you've done and you say, that's not wrong. And you're mad at yourself about that. And you say, that was wrong. And even though you want to walk away from it and forget it and let it be swept away, you can't ignore it. You say, no, something has to be done. That's not right. Justice must be served here. And so even your own anger needs propitiating, right? Something has to be done about your conscience. And so if, if we can't, simply forget about it and move on, how can we possibly expect God, who's completely just, just to forget about our sin and move on? Those feelings of guilt and shame, those feelings of unworthiness, those times when you beat yourself up over what you have done, uh, those are your attempts to propitiate your own sin. But here's the thing, you can't do it. You cannot do it. You cannot atone for you. Only Jesus can atone for you. And that's the good news. God, in his great love, sent his son Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. That is, to placate his anger. Instead of God demanding that you satisfy his anger, God said, I will satisfy my anger myself. And it isn't that Jesus, we have God the Father and Jesus the Son, and Jesus the one standing between us and the Father and saying, no, no, Father, don't punish them, no, no. And the Father's steaming with anger. That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is God in love looks down and he sees you and he sees you in your sin and he, and he hates the sin in there and God in his love says, something must be done, I will send my son. And it's not that Jesus is a victim of the father's abuse, but Jesus says, Father, I will go. He willingly lays down his life for his people. I will go, I will take the wrath so that they may go free. And the Holy Spirit then awakens your hearts to these truths. It's not that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in conflict. They're all working together. They have all conspired together for your salvation. And Jesus on the cross takes the full penalty of the sins of everyone who would trust in him, satisfying the wrath and the justice of God. You know what that means? Jesus has suffered. Therefore, you don't have to suffer. He has paid the price. Therefore, you don't have to pay the price. Notice the common theme of all of this. The father sends the son out of love. The son goes to the cross out of love. The spirit awakens your heart out of love. God works in love for his people. You do not need to bear the guilt and the shame of your sin any longer. Jesus has taken it away. You do not need to beat yourself up anymore. Jesus has already suffered for it. And so instead, come, come, receive the forgiveness. Receive the forgiveness. And you know what God will do at that point? That image of God in you that has been marred and distorted by sin, he begins to restore in you so that you begin to be who you are meant to be. More and more like Christ. More and more for the glory of God. You're made in the image of God. You have glory. So are those around you. And so let's live for that glory. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you today that you did not make us like the other creatures. 
you made us like you. Lord, I confess, I don't feel very royal. I'm sure uh, many among us here today don't feel like a great treasure. And yet your word says that it's true, and so we are going to believe it. Father, I pray for those who are hurt by the guilt of what they have done. For some, it may be abortion or encouraging someone else to have an abortion. For others, it may be uh, that they've acted callously and heartlessly towards those in, in difficult situations and pregnancies. We have not treated them as if they are made in the image of God. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us not because we will do anything to satisfy your justice, but because Christ has done it all. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are here today, as they hear these words, as first the feelings of guilt may come over them, that you would take those guilts away as you put their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May they realize that in Christ they are loved, they are forgiven, and they are cherished. And therefore, Lord, we pray that we might live as those who bear your image and showing your glory to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.